Hi, church. A number of years ago, I went uh, away for a week at a conference or vacation. I can't remember what it was, but I was out of the pulpit for a Sunday, and the week that I returned, I jumped back into whatever series I was preaching on. I, I can't remember now what the series was either, but I, I preached a sermon. I felt like it went okay, and I, I went to sit back down on my seat, and uh, one of the senior saints grabbed me and tapped me on the shoulder, and I turned around, and she said to me, Pastor, you should go away more often. <laughs> and I, I wasn't quite sure how to take it, so after the last song, I kind of turned and said, could you just explain your comment a little bit to me and tell me what you meant? And she said, you know, a week of refreshment really fired you up and made it a noticeable difference in the energy that you brought to the pulpit today. So you should go away more often. So I was thinking about that this week, and the last time I preached was March 20th, over two months ago. And if that pattern holds true, and I preach better after I've been away, I don't know what's going to happen today. So I'm, I'm really excited. I, I am more than excited, though. I am just humbled and I'm honored uh, to be with you today. As I mentioned last week, I was invited uh, just to volunteer some time and preach a couple times before we leave town. I, I spent a few days last week driving to and from Pennsylvania. In the span of 72 hours, I drove over 1,200 miles, saw over a dozen houses, put an offer on one of them, which got accepted, praise the Lord, and we even put our house in Belleville on the market. Yeah. So during, during that long drive, this is the point of that, during the long drive, I had opportunity to kind of wrap my mind and my heart around what the leaders asked me to preach on here. Um, the next couple sermons. And, and I'm going to be preaching a four-week series on some elements of a healthy church. And I'm going to have a few weeks in between that series where I just get to kind of do a couple bonus sermons as well, which I'm excited about too. But those four weeks are certainly not going to be able to cover everything that the Bible says about healthy churches. I mean, I can only begin to scratch the surface of the iceberg that it word of God and what it has for us. But I figured what would be helpful for us, start in a place that maybe would feel a little bit familiar. So please take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah. <laughs> chapter 43, though. Chapter 43, okay? Isaiah 43. And we're not going to have the text on the screen or anything like that, so you've got to use your Bibles, which is a really good thing. We're going to spend some time in Isaiah 43. Let's just take another moment and ask the Lord's blessing on what we're about to do here. Father, as we quiet our hearts before you and we submit ourselves to the authority of the Word of God, I pray that through the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God, that you would do something in us today. Stir our hearts, change our lives, and Lord, I pray all of that for your glory, not ours. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 43, I'm going to read the first seven verses. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, 
the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sabah in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now I realize that we are jumping right into the middle of a passage here. When I was preaching through Isaiah, my last sermon I preached was in chapter 27. So we are launching 16 chapters ahead. So I've got to pause just for a second and ask what is going on at this part of the book. And notice that the passage I just read started with two words, but now, but now. And that in Isaiah is setting up a contrast with what just happened before. In the previous paragraph, God accuses the Israelites of being deaf and blind and dumb. Not dumb as in stupid dumb, but dumb as in you can't speak kind of dumb. It's a way of comparing the Israelites to the idols that they worshipped. They began to resemble what they revered. Just like us, when we revere, when we worship God, we become like God. When we worship Jesus, oftentimes we become more like Christ because we are devoted to him, we're concentrating on him, we're, we're worshiping him with our lives. Well, the same is true if you do the same with idols. When you worship idols, what God is saying to the Israelites here is he's comparing them to the idols, just like an idol can't see, an idol can't hear, an idol can't talk, so an Israelite can't hear or see or talk spiritually. They refuse to obey God's laws, they sin against the Lord, so God says in that last chapter he's going to punish them for their sin. So the ending of chapter 42 is pretty bleak. But in contrast to that, we see chapter 43. God has something different to say in chapter 43. So I want you to keep chapter 42 in mind, though, the stuff that I just said. Everything that the Lord is about to say in this chapter that we're reading has as its background the sinfulness of the Israelites. Whatever we see God say here, Whatever benefits the Israelites' relationship have with them and God, it has absolutely nothing to do with any intrinsic goodness of God's people. They are nothing but spiritually deaf, blind, and dumb. And yet, God created them. God formed them. God made them. He redeemed them. He called them by name despite their sinfulness. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what we call the gospel? That's a picture of the gospel right there. Remember that verse that Hal was so desperately trying to recall last week? I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it. Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God did not look down the corridors of time and see what good, kind-hearted person that you would turn out to be and then decided to save you based on your wonderful faith and good merits. That is not at all what the Bible says. God knew that you would be a terrible, rebellious, hard-hearted sinner. And yet he still loved you enough to send his son to die on the cross for you. That is the gospel. 
That is love, and that is the context in which we've got to read this chapter of Scripture. It's written all over the pages of Isaiah here. But I don't want you to think that God did all of that just for you. I mean, he did, right? He did that for you. He died for you. But here's what I mean by that. God did not create you just for your own personal pleasure. You are not the center of this universe. You are not the reason for your own existence. Listen again to some of the verses in that passage. Isaiah 43, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel. Then you jump down to the last verse in verse 7, and you can hear those verbs repeated again. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God created, formed, and made you for his glory. For his glory. You, as, as one of God's people, were created for God's good pleasure. Not your own pursuit of self-pleasure. Not for the sake of your own happiness. He created you for his glory. He created you so that by your existence, his own name could be magnified and exalted and praised and worshipped even more. God's work in you glorifies God by revealing who God is and how much he loves you. I'm sorry to say, church, but it ain't about you. That's just the reality of the word of God. Just like when a, a painter paints a beautiful masterpiece and it's hung up on a, a wall somewhere, in a museum somewhere, in someone's house or whatever, you don't look at that painting and praise the, the paint. You look at that painting and, and you say wonderful things about the painter behind the painting. Look at what he's done. A while ago, there was a song that was popular to sing in church, and I'm really glad we didn't sing it this morning, because that would have made this part very awkward. But their song, the lyrics went a little something like this. Like a rose trampled on the ground, he took the fall and thought of me above all. I remember Pastor John Piper ragging on this song, and rightly so, I think. Jesus, yeah, he, he was thinking of you when he died on the cross, but not above all. Not above all. Above all, he was thinking of his Father's glory. He was thinking of his Father's glory. Your redemption, yes, it was for you, but ultimately it was for the glory of God, and he will not give that glory to any other. Everything in existence was ultimately to bring glory and honor and worship to God. The church was created for God's glory. That's really our big, our simple idea for this sermon. Healthy churches exist for the glory of God. It's that simple. And this passage in particular shows us three areas where God's people glorify him. First, we see that our redemption brings glory to God. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 43. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Beautiful words right there. Put those in your heart. Notice how the creation of God's people, the redemption of God's people, and the exaltation of God are inseparably linked here. The creation of God's people, the redemption of God's people, 
and the exaltation of God are inseparably linked. And that's a pattern we see all throughout Scripture. I'll give you a couple examples of this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. The Apostle Paul says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Through him, creation, and for him, for his glory. The creation of God's people magnifies the Lord by giving him glory. Give you another example. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 says, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for, here's the reason, for you created all things. And by your will they existed and they were created. Why is God worthy? Because he is creator. And if you keep reading into Revelation chapter 5, then it highlights the redemption aspect of our creation. Revelation 5, 12, saying with a loud voice, they say, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So Revelation 4, because of God's creational abilities, he should be exalted. Revelation 5, because of the redemption that God offers in the slain lamb of Jesus Christ, he should receive honor and glory and power and might forever and ever. Now we're looking at all this through the lens of what makes a healthy church? Healthy churches exalt God. Healthy churches recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the creation of God's people, brings God the greatest glory. The creation of this church brings glory to God. And let me make sure I clarify that with a few statements. I am not in any way, trying to glorify the Savior that brought us here. I am not trying to minimize the hurt and devastation that comes from a church split. I told you long before it happened that it was coming and that in a church split, no one wins. It is incredibly painful. But here's what I want you to see. You know what else is painful? The most painful thing in all of human history the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. The most painful thing in all of history, the suffering and death of Jesus Christ in the Calvary. Was God glorified by that? Yes, he was. And if God be glorified by the cross, then certainly God can bring himself glory through the mess of a church. And that's what we're here for. Healthy churches exist for the glory of God. And what we see in Isaiah 43 is that, first of all, our redemption itself brings glory to God. The creation of our church body brings glory to God. Your redemption in Christ as a Christian brings glory to God. A second thing that this passage in Isaiah emphasizes, number two, our trials bring glory to God. Look at verse 2. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you fire, you shall be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. Am I coming in and out? I can kind of hear it too. Is there anything I can do to make it better on this side? No? Preach louder, is that what you said? 
Our, our trials bring glory to God. I, I want you to think about the metaphors in verse 2. When you pass through the waters, God says, I will be with you. Now, at first glance, when I was first thinking through this, what I, what I did when I drove back and forth to PA was I memorized this passage that I was going to preach. And when I was first chewing on this for about an hour's time, I kept thinking of the Israelites crossing over through the Red Sea during the time of Moses. The great exodus from Egypt, right? But then I got to that second line. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And I realized this isn't talking about a particular time in history. It's not talking about the exodus, because rivers doesn't match that event. This is talking about a generalization. It's a poetic way of talking about the trials that we go through as believers. We don't think much of this kind of metaphor today, though, do we? We have bridges and can drive 1,000-pound vehicles back and forth over them all day long if we want. We don't think twice about it. We have boats and we have ships. And they can easily cross back and forth multiple times a day. But back then, crossing a river was a great danger. How many of you remember that old, like, old, old computer game, the Oregon Trail? How many of you played the Oregon Trail before? Yeah. Remember that game? You died of dysentery. Like, you were this, you were this family, you had a little cart, and you had to go from one point of the country all the way to Oregon and, and try to make your trail and and you had to you know, cross rivers, and you had to shoot bears, and you had to get food at the different stops that you're at. And, and along the way, everyone would like die over, you know, you broke your leg, and you died. And dysentery was always a thing. We don't know why, but it was just terrible all the time. But along that trip, every time, you would eventually have to ford a river. You'd have to cross a river. And that little rickety thing would go across that river, and you remember what would happen, right? It would sink. Blah, 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 blah. And then you get the message on the screen and it would tell you that someone in your party drowned and died and they also had dysentery. That was not just reality for the early pioneers, that was a reality for God's people in the time of Isaiah. Crossing a river was dangerous, it was difficult, it was deadly, but God promises I with you. God promises that the currents would not overwhelm them. Same thing with the fire. He says when you walk through the fire, you earned. Notice how that's written. When you walk through fire. Not if. When you walk through fire. It assumed the Israelites would have occasion to walk through a fiery ordeal in their lives. Now these metaphors, we can't take them literally. This is poetry. Not every Israelite would ford a river. Not every Israelite would walk through fire in his or her lifetime. These are metaphors that represent the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties in the life of a believer. When believers go through trials, God will be with them. God won't allow those trials to defeat them. Isn't that great news? During your darkest times of life, God was with you. Our trials bring glory to God. Our individual trials bring glory to God. Some of you have been long-suffering through various difficulties in your life. Maybe, maybe it's a medical difficulty. Maybe it's an emotional burden, a financial stress, a reoccurring family problem. There's a lot going on in our lives, isn't there? Ask yourself this. How does this trial bring glory to God? 
Maybe God wants you to learn something or grow through it, to be sanctified through that trial. Perhaps God wants you to have the ability to help others who are going through similar circumstances. Perhaps even just the way that you suffer as a believer with hope in life after this. Perhaps even that will be a testimony to other people around you. All of that bring glory to God. No suffering, no matter how big or how small in your life, should ever be wasted in the life of a believer. In fact, it might help to recognize that Scripture doesn't just talk about trials as if God is up there kind of passively allowing some to happen to us and blocking others from happening to us. Like he's sitting up there and is trying all these different things and God's up there kind of just filtering through what he wants us to deal with and what he doesn't. That's not how Scripture talks about it. It should give us comfort to know that Scripture talks about God as having an active participatory role in your trials. Listen to these verses from Psalm 66. For you, God, have tested us. You have tried over his tried. You brought us to the net. You laid a crushing burden on our back. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. You have brought us out of, to a place of abundance. Notice all the you, you, you. Talking to God. Lamentations. Lamp, you know, maybe is there like a, is there a handheld mic I could use? Could we switch to that? That'd be great. Awkward moment of pause. Pray amongst yourselves. How about that? Is that a little better? All right. Hopefully this one stays on and doesn't cut me off here. Maybe the Lord's trying to say something. I don't know. Lamentations chapter 1. The book of Lamentations was written by Jeremiah, the prophet. And you might remember in that book, he's writing at the time when all of Jerusalem is destroyed. The whole city is in shambles around him. People are dead. People are exiled. Friends are gone, slain before him. And here's what Jeremiah, the prophet, writes about God. He says in verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, From on high, he, God, sent fire. Into my bones, he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. And if you think that language is strong, read the language of Lamentations chapter 3. That's even more explicit that God is the ultimate causer behind the suffering of believers. Now this should give us comfort, not fear. Because God is a good God. And he would not allow us to suffer for any reason other than his glory and our sanctification. Let me give you an example of this. I make my kids suffer all the time. Where are my kids? Are they in here somewhere? There you are, right in the back. Okay, I see you. Do I make you suffer all the time, kids? Yeah, thumbs up, big thumbs up. I make them suffer when I send them to bed early. I make them suffer when I make them eat vegetables. I make them suffer when they go to the doctor and they get a shot in their arm that hurts them. But that suffering is for their good, isn't it? We recognize that. They might not, but we recognize that suffering is for their good. And if we're quite frank about it, that suffering is also for my glory. Because the better behaved they are, the better it reflects on me. Many of you at times have said, Pastor, your kids are such angels. They're so well-behaved. And I say, I know. I make them suffer. 
Now, now, if we can conceive of a situation where one adult can cause a child to suffer for the good of that child and for the glory of the parent, how much more should we be able to conceive of an omniscient, omnipotent, all-good God causing a human to suffer for the human's benefit and for the glory of the Heavenly Father? You see how that works? Our suffering on an individual level brings glory to God. But guess what? This was written to Israel collectively. The collective suffering of the people of God brings glory to God. Think about the things Israel went through. They went through over 400 years of slavery to the Egyptians. That brought glory to God, didn't it? Because out of that came their redemption. They went through decades of, of slavery and exile, but that brought glory to God, didn't it? Over and over again, God's people suffered which brought glory to God. The trials through which this church was birthed brings glory to God. Doesn't mean that it was all good and all righteous and all holy. Doesn't mean that everyone did everything perfectly, including me. But through the trials, through even a church split, God can and will be glorified. Sometimes God glorifies himself even in the judgment that he delivers upon believers. God disciplines those whom he loves. God judges unbelievers when they sin. And that discipline and that judgment demonstrates God's justice, demonstrates God's love, even God's mercy, and therefore God is glorified. As I said before, if God can enjoy the greatest amount of glory ever through the most evil action in history ever, the death, the crucifixion of his son, Jesus then most certainly God can enjoy glory through the much smaller evils and trials and difficulties that we have in our churches here. Our redemption brings glory to God. Our trials bring glory to God. On the positive side, number three, our blessings bring glory to God. Look at verses three to six. Think about the blessings that God gave Israel through these verses. He says, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sabah in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth. This is now looking way, way forward to the time after the exile. Isaiah is writing before the exile. This is looking beyond the exile. God will once again bring his people back from all corners of the earth. He's going to take nations that once enslaved Israel, and he will give them as a present to his people. Isn't that cool? This describes the undeserved blessings of God to his people. Remember, they didn't earn any of this. Isaiah 42 comes before Isaiah 43. They did not earn any of this. They were blind and dumb and deaf. But by God's good mercy, he gave them this gift. And those blessings are not just for their benefit, but ultimately for the purpose of exalting and glorifying God. Look at verse 7 again. He says, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created, say it with me, for my glory. For my glory, he says. God has blessed us, hasn't he? He has blessed you individually. You can count those blessings. He has blessed us corporately. 
He's blessed us with leadership, willing to commit time to keep things moving, struggling through the early trials of a new church, blessed us with a building to meet in, blessed us with many hands and many people using their gifts to serve the Lord. I mean, look at the people that were up here this morning, from teens to old people like Jesse, right? Praise the Lord for that. And all of that, not to our glory, not to our human benefit, but to the glory and the benefit of God. The redemption that churches preach about, the trials that churches suffer through, the blessings that churches enjoy, all of that is for the ultimate purpose of exalting and magnifying and worshiping and glorying in our creator, God. It's all over scripture. In fact, take your Bibles, flip a couple chapters ahead in Isaiah. I'm just going to touch on this one, but I couldn't, I couldn't not touch on this one this morning. It goes so well with what we're saying here. Look at Isaiah 48. We're just going to jump right into the middle of that. Isaiah 48, verses 9 to 11. Listen to the emphasis in this text. You cannot miss it. Isaiah 48, 9. God says, for my, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You can't miss it there. For whose sake does the Lord act? For his own sake. For his own sake, it says. For the glory of God. So, so for whose glory should a church act? For his glory. Everything a church does should obsessively be driven by the principle of bringing glory to God. Sum it up in one word, exalt. Exalt. Lift up your God. Lift up your creator. Praise the one who redeemed you. We ask questions like this. Does this ministry glorify God? We ask questions like this. Does our mission statement glorify God? Does the way we conduct this meeting glorify God? Does the way we use our time glorify God? Do our focuses as a church glorify God? Do you see what I mean? Healthy churches exist for the glory of God. And that driving principle controls everything. Everything a church is and does. You want people to look at a church and say that church exists for the glory of Jesus Christ. God is the most famous in every service, in every ministry. God is most talked about. God is most magnified. Now, what specifically does that look like in a church? There are many, many ways I could have answered that. Some of those other ways, maybe you'll talk about a little bit and explore with you go to those small groups. I would really encourage you, sign up for those small groups. What they're going to do is they're going to take what we're doing here from the pulpit and they're going to put it to practical application and discussion for you to talk about what is a healthy church. What should it look like? So sign up for those if you haven't yet. But let me suggest to you just three specific ways that a local church can bring glory to God in what they do. Each of these ways is rooted right in the text of Scripture, outside of Isaiah even, and that's where we're going to go. We're going to look in the New Testament a little bit too before we wrap it up. 
Three specific ways a local church glorifies God. Here's the first one. First, a local church glorifies God by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we give the gospel the proper place in the pulpit, in the classroom, in small groups, in discipleship, in all of ministry, that brings glory to God. Listen to the bold words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.17. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul says that Jesus sent him with the special task of preaching the gospel. That took primacy over baptism. That took primacy over everything else in ministry. Preach the gospel. He didn't have to fancy it up with words of eloquent wisdom. In other words, he didn't have to sound like the surrounding Greek culture at that time. The surrounding culture valued this oratorical flourish and clever techniques that would entertain people and that would tickle people's ears. That's not what he did. He came and preached the gospel. Now, I don't want you to get this and take this the wrong way. This might be a little bit offensive, but that's what's nice about what you have right now. I don't want you to forget this, church. Don't forget this principle. If God chooses to grow this congregation, if God chooses to give you a permanent building, if God chooses to give you a bigger budget, you don't need the fancy lights and the flare and the puffy hair to do the Lord's will. Well, puffy hair, I mean like those puffy hair evangelists you see on TV. I mean, they, they spend more money on their manicures than on their missionaries, right? You don't need that to do the Lord's will. You don't need the, the smoke machine and the video clips and the fancy backgrounds. What you need more than anything else is the gospel of Jesus Christ to be infused in every bit of your ministry. Now, I, I say that, and I'm not saying, like, you don't want to just ignore aesthetics, right? But healthy churches evaluate their success with the gospel, not with aesthetics. Healthy churches evaluate their success with the gospel, not with glitter and lights. What happens when the gospel is relegated to a secondary role of importance? Listen again to 1 Corinthians 1.17. Think about the way these clauses relate to each other. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. When fancy words and props and entertainment culture replace the preaching of the gospel, the cross of Christ is emptied of its power. God is not glorified. A church glorifies God and demonstrates the true power of the cross when it keeps the gospel primary in all of its ministries. In fact, if you go down a few verses to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verses 1 to 5. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When the gospel is preached, when the message of Christ crucified 
died, buried, risen again is preached, the power of God has its full and greatest effect in the church. But when the gospel is not preached rightly, it takes the focus off of God and puts it back on us. And we want to avoid that at all costs. A wise man once said, I don't know where this came from. I've seen it in a number of different prints and online and all that. But a wise person once said, what you win them with, you win them to. What you win them with, you win them to. When you win a person over to church using the smoke machines and the funny skits and the cotton candy preaching, you're going to fill seats. But you have won people over not to the gospel, but to entertainment. So church, preach the gospel. Teach the gospel. Keep it primary in every ministry of the church. Secondly, a local church glorifies God by teaching sound biblical theology. A local church glorifies God by teaching sound biblical theology. Now you might think that that point is kind of a repeat of the first one in different words. There's definitely overlap. But let me elaborate for you and and you'll see the different emphasis here. Turn with me to Luke 24. Luke 24. Gospel writer Luke tells a story about Jesus, after he died, he rose again shortly after his resurrection. There were two men that were walking to a village called Emmaus. It's a village about seven miles from Jerusalem. They had a long walk to go. And they were talking about all the things that happened in the last few days and weeks. The trial of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the rumors of an empty grave. All of this was huge news around Jerusalem. And as they're walking and talking about it, Jesus appears next to him. You remember this story? He's kind of like undercover boss. They don't know it's him. But he shows up next to them. He's listening into their conversation. Eventually, he joins their conversation. And in Luke 24, starting in verse 27, Luke says that Jesus said this. Or this is what Jesus was talking to them about. He says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Notice how Luke says that. Jesus starts in the Old Testament with Moses, that's representing the first five books of the Bible, and he says with and the, the prophets, that's the Hebrews, uh, they would oftentimes think of books even like Joshua, books like Kings as prophets. So it's kind of a way of referring to Moses, first couple books, prophets, the rest of the Bible. So he started in the beginning, he worked his way all the way through the Bible. It's shorthand for saying Jesus walked them through the Old Testament and helped them to understand how the entirety of Scripture pointed in one direction. It pointed to the cross. The things concerning himself. All of Scripture pointed to Jesus, pointed to the gospel. Jesus is the end goal of all history. He is the fulfillment of all history. He is the culmination of all history, which means that every book of the Bible that you read, from the creation story in Genesis to the genealogies in Chronicles to the war stories in Joshua to the poetry of the Psalms to the wisdom sayings of the Proverbs to the words of the prophets, every book, every chapter, every story points to Jesus Christ and the gospel. That is proper biblical theology. And when we understand that, And when we bring that to the table for our kids in Sunday school, when we bring that from the pulpit, from whoever you will call as your pastor, when we bring that to every ministry and drive our ministries in that direction, that brings glory to God and demonstrates the health of a church. 
Luke goes on to write it like this down in verse 45. Skip down to verse 45. It says, Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Do you see how that proper biblical theology, it's founded upon the word of God, it's focused on Christ in the gospel, and it's what we call expository in methodology. Expository means you explain it and you interpret it, the scriptures according to the meaning in the text. You don't read meaning into the text. You take the meaning out of the text that's already there. And you allow the author's intent to guide you in the word of God. Want a good example of that? Nehemiah chapter 8 says they read from the book, from the law of God clearly. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And then if you keep on reading, they start applying it. They read it. They explained it. They applied it. Biblical theology right there in the Bible. They read it, they explained it, they applied it. Healthy biblical theology through expository preaching and teaching of the word of God. What I'm saying is this, church. Let the word drive your programs. Let the word drive your ministries. Let the word drive your pastoral search. Let the word drive your mission statement. Let it drive your values. Let it drive your heartbeat as a church. A denomination should not drive you. A constitution should not drive you. But the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, should drive you as a church. When we focus our ministries on sound biblical theology, it is not boring, it is not stuffy, it is biblical. And it helps people to know God better through the word of God in every area of scripture. It points people to Jesus, it points people to the gospel, and that is a healthy church, which brings glory to God. Now third and finally, and I'm going to be real quick about this one, because I'm actually going to expand on this the next couple weeks. A local church glorifies God by giving proper place to edification and evangelism. Local church glorifies God by giving proper place to edification and evangelism. Edify means that we build each other up. It's discipleship. It's using our gifts to benefit the local church. It's inward ministry. Evangelism means that we take those gifts and we take that gospel outside of these walls to the world around us. We reach the tribes that don't have the gospel. We reach the people, groups who have never heard of Jesus Christ. We share the word of God with our neighbors and our coworkers and our families and our enemies even. We take active initiative to share the gospel ourselves personally whenever we have the occasion. Now that idea of edification and evangelism, that's all backed by scripture. I'm not going to dig into it right now, but I'm going to take two more sermons to do so over the next few weeks. I'm going to preach about the requirement of a church to edify one another. I'm going to preach about the need for a church to have a healthy focus on evangelism. But today, I want you to catch the vision of the greatest purpose of a local church. Healthy churches exist for the glory of God. They exalt their creator, their redeemer. Healthy churches glorify God by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Healthy churches glorify God by teaching sound biblical theology. And the next two sermons in this series, we're going to see that healthy churches glorify God by edifying one another and evangelizing the world. The Apostle Paul, writing to that same church in 1 Corinthians, 
Later, chapter 10, verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, you know it. Do it all for the glory of God. Church, I'd like you to stand as the praise team comes back up on the platform. They've got one more song. Is that right? Okay. As you stand, I'm going to read to you Romans 11:36. Listen to these words. Again, written by the Apostle Paul. And think about how it relates to healthy churches bringing glory to God. Romans 11:36. Paul says, For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen.